Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's journey, we're going to venture all over Southwest Michigan because this story that I'm about to tell you started up in Manistee, but it has connections to Kalamazoo, Hastings, and a few other places in Southwest Michigan. And the story is the great Vanderpool murder trial that happened between 1869 and 1871. And it was something that occupied the news of that time period as a constant story that was talked about all over Southwest Michigan. And it actually became a story that was picked up on the international news circuit as well. So it was a story in Michigan that went all around the world during its time. So come along and join me as we try to unpack this story and find out what it was all about and what happened. Now this story involves two men, Herbert Field and George Vanderpool. And in this episode, we're going to explore the lives of both of these men and the story that unfolded. On the 5th of September, 1869, Herbert Field, who was the son of Stephen Field of Lewiston, Maine, mysteriously disappeared from his home at Manistee, a city at that time that was just merely 5,000 people and it was situated near the mouth of the Manistee River in Michigan. And Herbert Field, at the time that he went missing, was 21 years old. And once again, he went missing in September of 1869. And since the 12th of December, 1868, he'd been in partnership with a man named George Vanderpool. And the two were involved in the banking business in Manistee, Michigan. Now, the business was understood to be quite profitable, and the larger part of the capital of the institution was placed there originally by Herbert Field. To understand properly the nature and the background of this story and the circumstances that ultimately threw the suspicion around George Vanderpool as the guilty party in this matter, as he was the partner of Herbert Field, I think it's best that we maybe start with exploring the lives of Herbert Field individually, as well as George Vanderpool. Now, Herbert was born in Lewiston, Maine in July of 1848. In his boyhood, he passed in much the same manner as other boys of that time, and he enjoyed the usual education advantages, and he was liberally provided with that education in the New England states. And his disposition was somewhat adventurous. And he had had three narrow escapes from drowning in his early youth. And once, he barely escaped from death from the premature discharge of a rifle. And on another occasion, he was saved as if by a miracle from death by a fire and suffocation. At the age of 13, he left his home for Washington 
and after visiting several places in that vicinity, he finally met some friends in a Maine regiment. And thereafter, he took part as a soldier and experienced the hardships of that position in his life. But his experience there somewhat destroyed his interest and the fascination for the life of a soldier. And he returned home and began his living by engaging as a newsboy back in Maine. As he got a little bit older, he decided to become a sailor. And so he joined a ship that was a government transport. And that ship was bound with supplies for New Orleans. And when he finally returned from that cruise in early 1863, he was just 15 years old. He shipped on the John Tucker, which was a vessel bound from Boston on a South American and European voyage. And on that voyage, he was harshly treated and insufficiently fed. It was a very arduous experience for him. And the vessel encountered a very stormy passage. And finally, at Valparaiso, the captain gave Youngfield permission to leave the ship and take on a passage on a brig bound for San Francisco. At the same time, when he gave him this permission, he was saying he was not authorized to give him a discharge. So while awaiting for the departure of the brig at a hotel in Valparaiso, he was arrested and confined as a runaway, and he was returned to the John Tucker. But he did eventually find a way out of that arrangement by joining the United States Navy, and he joined a vessel of the United States Navy in a foreign port and was on Admiral Porter's flagship called the Lancaster. And he continued in that service for nine months. And he visited several South American cities and gaining a lot of information about the world in those experiences as a young man. After eventually leaving the service of the Lancaster, Herbert Field shipped on a English bark bound for Liverpool. And thence the bark sailed from Russia and was shipwrecked on the Baltic Sea. Field lost all of his clothing and his savings of $100 in gold. The American consul at Riga took him in charge and forwarded him on to Liverpool, where he remained for six weeks. And staying some time in Britain there, he was able to rest up and recover in the surrounding country. Finally, he shipped home for a voyage and arrived in Boston in the autumn of 1865. And his arrival home was quite unexpected. His friends were surprised to see him as they had given him up for lost at sea a long time ago. He'd been gone two years. And after that, he went to college at a commercial college in Auburn, New York, and remained there in through the fall and the winter and the spring. And he took up a job in a mercantile store in New York. And failing to find a place, he shipped on a voyage to the West Indies, and he returned that fall, and he was induced by his friends to write a lecture on his travels. And thus, he delivered this lecture at Central Hall at Lewiston, and one of the ladies that attended that lecture was very impressed. And she became very interested in his adventures, and she offered to aid him in procuring a better education. And so he accepted the offer, and he entered the Edward Little Institute, where after some time he spent there in study, his health began to fail, and he abandoned that course. Somewhere in 1868, he made his way to Michigan, and he commenced into the business of banking in Manistee. 
and Mrs. Hill, his benefactor, who had adopted him, furnished him the required capital of several thousand dollars to help establish the bank. She regarded young Field as a son, and he addressed her as his aunt. So Herbert Field provided the larger sum for the Bank of Manistee to get the bank started. And it was generally understood in Manistee, through the representation of Vanderpool himself, that he had but little money in the institution, and that his skill and experience in the business fully was offset to the larger means of his moneyed partner. So that's the description of Herbert Field and his early history of how he became a banker in Manistee. So who was George Vanderpool? Mr. Vanderpool was born in the state of New York, and he was about 35 years old at the time of this story. And his early advantages were not very great, but he managed to persist with a lot of energy in his life to acquire a pretty good education. In his early life, he spent much of his time as a farmer. And then when he eventually came to Michigan, he sought employment on the western shore around Muskegon and the surrounding country, where he engaged in lumbering occupations. And he became an expert, trustworthy, and industrious in those capacities. And he gained a lot of information and a lot of positive feedback from a lot of different employers in the area. He enlisted during the American Civil War and served three years honorably. And following the war, he returned to Michigan and he engaged as a clerk in several different stores over the following years in Muskegon. And in 1868, he formed the partnership with Herbert Field and went into the banking business in Manistee. And he always publicly supported Field, and he let everybody know that Field was the major investor in the bank. And a lady by the name of Mrs. S.R. Sanford of Muskegon, who was quite known in the area for some 14 years, assisted him with some capital to help him engage in establishing this business. So that's a quick background on these two men. Now, the bank that they established was opened as a new business, and it was in a small, ordinary, two-story frame building, and it fronted on a principal street in Manistee, and the rear end reached to the river, which was behind the property. And the building itself was considerably elevated above the river. The upper floor was occupied by a dentist office, and it adjoined a store in the same building, which was used as a shoe shop. And there were windows on the rear of the building that looked out upon the river, and then behind the building there was a stairway that led down to the shore. So that's a quick description of the building itself. So their banking business was on the main floor of this building. So their partnership had begun in February of 1869, and the business continued to flourish under their management. And during the summer of that year, both parties had taken little pleasure trips to the east. Vanderpool, in his trip, got married with a girl that he had scarcely known for over a year, and he returned with his wife. And on returning, he made some trifling remarks to others in the community about how the business was run in his absence. And the result of those comments, they filtered back to Field, 
and Field decided that he wanted to retire from the business and have Vanderpool buy him out. So Vanderpool and Field met at the bank and looked over the accounts, and they drew up a paper for separation and having Field leave the business. And they supposedly had drawn up this Articles of Dissolution, and they'd taken, after their meeting and forming this up, they went to the shoe shop that was adjoining the building and had some of the people there sign as witnesses to them signing this agreement. And after the witnesses signed, the two of them went back into the bank and closed the door. And after that, Herbert Field was never seen alive again. And that's where the story becomes very interesting and strange. So basically, Herbert Field vanished. No one saw him leave the building. Vanderpool maintained that they had gone home their own separate ways, but no one had seen Field leave. And, of course, it must have been late in the afternoon. Perhaps it was uh, common for them to work late in the bank. It's hard to say. But initially, no witnesses came forward to indicate that Fields had been seen after going back in the bank that night. And so all of everybody's suspicions fell upon George Vanderpool as having had something to do with his disappearance. And George maintained that he had no idea why Field had disappeared. And he cooperated completely with authorities when they came around to inquire with him on his movements that evening. So following the disappearance of Herbert Field, obviously people started looking for him immediately. And no one was able to find out where he was at. He wasn't at home. He wasn't at work. No one could recall seeing him leave the bank building. And they had begun searching the rivers, thinking that maybe he had drowned. They did a thorough search of the bank building, and there was no clues that were connected with his disappearance found. I mean, there was no blood or anything. And they began searching the shoreline for 28 miles in each direction from Manistee of, on Lake Michigan. And about 28 miles north of Manistee, his body was found. And there was a rope encircling his body. And there was a blunt force trauma wound on his head. And the coroner determined that the wound on the man's head, he'd been floating in the water for that long, was the cause of death. But they weren't able to determine much more than that. So they ended up charging George Vanderpool with his murder, primarily on the grounds of he was the last person to see him alive. And the insinuation was that George would benefit from his death as he would become the sole owner of the bank. So Herbert Field's body was found on the 17th of September, 1869. And the trial of George Vanderpool was held in Manistee, and it began on February 1870. And it was held in the circuit court, and Judge J.G. Ramsdale was presiding. And this trial lasted 24 days, and it finally concluded on February 26. And George Vanderpool was sentenced to the state prison for life. So he had been charged with first-degree murder and found guilty and sentenced to go to the Michigan State Penitentiary in Jackson, Michigan. And he was only there for about 10 weeks. 
when a motion for a new trial was filed by his attorneys, and he was granted that motion based on new evidence. And so he was regulated over to the jail in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And in looking up additional articles on this whole story, it looks like he spent about 10 weeks in Jackson, and then he was transferred to Kalamazoo. On May 10th, it was signed by the judge that the appeal was granted, and so a new trial was begun to be organized while he was in the Kalamazoo jail in 1870 um, after May 10th. So Vanderpool actually stayed in Kalamazoo awaiting trial until it was eventually held in the fall of 1870 in Kalamazoo this time to provide a different jury. All the time, his fees for housing him and the transporting of witnesses from Manistee to the new trial was building and mounting. And the trial in Kalamazoo lasted a full month. And the outcome was that the jury was a hung jury. There was something like five jurors voted for acquittal and the remainders voted that he was guilty. And they couldn't come to a conclusion otherwise. So it became a mistrial and a new trial had to be held. So the third trial didn't happen until 1871 in September. And this time the state court moved the trial to Hastings, Michigan, and the new trial was held in September of 1871. Now, all of this time of this two-year period, it was getting a lot of press coverage. The first trial, the second trial, and this is where the story started going around not only Michigan, but other parts of the United States, and it was even picked up by some newspapers over in Europe because it was somewhat sensationalized. It was high-profile people that were backing this bank, and the murder was exceptional. Vanderpool maintained his innocence the entire time, and some of the new information that came to light was that Herbert Fields had been seen by another witness that had come forward later that evening around Manistee. So that was what took the suspicion off of Vanderpool and granted him the appeal. But the second hung jury really sent this one into the orbit of sensationalized media because not only did the trial last a month on the second one, but they came to no conclusion and another trial was going to have to be organized and all the time the state is paying for the housing and feeding of this prisoner as well as all the other expenses of travel expenses for witnesses to come down from Manistee to Kalamazoo and the general court fees involved with the second trial. So now a third trial had to be held, and it was chosen to be held in Hastings. So the same material was discussed in the trial, and eventually the jury went into deliberations on September 13th. And after they had been in deliberations for a couple of hours, they sent a notice to the judge that they would like to ask him some questions. So, of course, when this happened, everybody rushed to the courthouse because they all wanted to hear what this was all about. And the judge had to uh, call everybody to order. And then he addressed the jury and says, I understand, gentlemen, that you wish to inquire about further instructions or a reiteration of instructions. And I am here to comply with your request. And so what they did was ask them, could they charge him with first-degree murder or second-degree murder. 
And the judge clarified for them that second-degree murder was off the table because there was no witnesses or no evidence representing a struggle. Second-degree murder would be regarded as an accident, and there had been no evidence presented in the trial to substantiate that. So their only choice before them, based on the legal system of the day, was to either charge him with first-degree murder and send him to prison, or acquit him. So after this was clarified, they went back into deliberation. And it was only 15 minutes later that they notified the judge that the jury had agreed upon a verdict. So immediately everybody rushed back to the courthouse because they were just exiting pretty much and had just left the place thinking that this was going to go on for a few more hours or maybe in a couple of days or whatnot. And of course, everybody rushes back to the courthouse in Hastings. This was a big sensationalized trial. Reporters were following it at this point. And basically, the jury came back with a verdict of not guilty. And because so many people were marching into the courthouse when the original verdict was read by the jury, the judge had to ask them to repeat it because there was so many stomping of the feet. And so he did, and of course the whole place erupted into clapping. And Mrs. Vanderpool, George's wife, gave out a scream of exclamation at that point and cried and wept on her husband's shoulder. And the man, of course, George Vanderpool, who had been incarcerated for two years, nearly collapsed with relief in front of everybody. And after the trial was finished, the, what was going on with the jury was eventually revealed. They had gone through two rounds of voting. After the second round of voting, they had come to 11 voting for acquittal and one voting for murder in the second degree. And that's when they came back for clarification with the judge. And so when they went back in, that one juror that was holding out for murder in the second degree flipped to acquittal, having received that clarification, and all 12 jurors voted for acquittal. So what really happened to Herbert Fields? I guess we'll never know. They did say that he'd left that meeting with some money in his pocket, intending to take it to his safe at his personal house. Perhaps he was robbed. Perhaps somebody knew about the meeting and jumped him and robbed him and threw his body in the Lake Michigan. Or maybe Vanderpool had something to do with it and managed to get away with it. It's hard to know. There was very little physical evidence presented at trial because the man's body had been floating in Lake Michigan for almost two weeks before it was found. And everything else was circumstantial. And it's possible that Field had committed suicide and maybe hit his head when he jumped in Lake Michigan. I mean, there's all kinds of possibilities. There was no first-hand witness that observed him getting killed. And I believe what went in favor of Vanderpool was that people knew him and they didn't believe he was capable of murder. And no one had witnessed any kind of fight or struggle between the two men. But it's an interesting trial in the history of Michigan because the Vanderpool trial was referred to a lot in later years as being an expensive procedure. And it was something that the Michigan judicial system had to really learn from and speed up so they could avoid this sort of thing. Because in the end, it was about $5,000 in the course of the three trials and maybe a little bit more. 
Now, at that time, in the 1870s, that was a lot of money for the state to actually to absorb, and a lot of the individual municipalities never got reimbursed for their expenses in housing the prisoner or managing and paying for the trial. So there was a lot of outrage over this and a lot of criticism on the Michigan judicial system over the Vanderpool trial. So that's why it was referred to as the great Vanderpool murder trial that lasted between 1869 to 1871 in Michigan. And it became sort of a cautionary tale in the world of judicial proceedings in Michigan. So it's kind of an interesting story. I don't have a lot of information on the murder itself because it was very basic. I mean, somebody hit him on the head and threw him in the lake. Who did it? Obviously, this was 1869, so there was no video cameras to refer to back in those days. And fingerprint evidence wasn't even in use during that time and so many other forensic investigation tools that they use to discover criminals of the day dna blood research blood splatters all that stuff wasn't even in use at that time so it's an interesting story nonetheless but that's going to conclude today's journey through history if you enjoyed hearing about the vanderpool murder trial please be sure to leave a rating or review on whatever app that you are listening on And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And if you're on Facebook, be sure to go over to my Facebook page, Michael Delaware Author, and hit the like button on that page and follow me there, as I will be making future announcements uh, in 2024 of my book events and the release of my book on true crime stories from southwest michigan during the victorian era and until next time when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales of southwest michigan's past thank you for listening